When Paul writes to the saints at Philippi, it is a letter written to some of his dearest friends, and it is a letter to a young local church that was birthed through the power of the gospel and is sustained by the power of the gospel and whose only hope for the future is found in the gospel. This is Philippians, and we are Mercy Village Church. You can learn more at www.mercyvillage.church. We have a story, too, my, my wife and myself. I try not to tell it too many times, but sometimes it just fits so inextricably with, if that's even a word, with the sermon content or the passage that I just have to share it. And today is one of those days. In 2016, we departed uh, from here. We left our boys behind, and we spent nearly 10 weeks. We were gone for 10 weeks, almost all of those except for the travel days were in Uganda with the goal of bringing home our daughter, Phoenix Natabo Juliet Bokel. And it was a hard ride. It was. Um, but on the day that, right, so you're there and you're waiting, and eventually it becomes in nobody's hands but the United States of America. It's very much at the end of the process. You've endured a lot of having to navigate two governmental systems. But once you have everything you need from the Ugandan government, now you're waiting for the, for the U.S. to do their part. We were waiting and waiting and waiting, and we were contacting senators, and we were visiting the U.S. Embassy there in the heart of Kampala multiple times a week, and eventually they let us know, your paperwork is, is ready. We immediately booked our flights home for exactly four hours-ish after the time that the U.S. Embassy was open for us to come and get those papers. The next morning, we got up, and we went, and we got them, and we had two sets of papers, one from the Ugandan government that would make our daughter worthy to depart from Uganda. And then the U.S. Embassy gave us this uh, manila envelope, and it, had its, it was sealed, but it had a little corner cut off of it so that you could kind of peek in there and make sure everything you needed was in there, but it wasn't big enough that you could stick anything else in there, right? So that what left the U.S. Embassy in that folder was what remains at the U.S. Embassy in that folder when you get to the United States of America, and only what was in that manila envelope was the only thing that would make her worthy to enter into the United States of America. And so we clung to it. We clung to it as we raced to the airport, as we raced through security, you know, hoping that this wasn't just a dream, get on the flight, pinching ourselves the whole time and, and make our way home. Only that paperwork would make her worthy to come into the United States of America. Listen, only the gospel makes us worthy. That's what we're going to see today in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. The gospel alone makes us worthy. Worthy of the love of God. Worthy, as we'll also see, of being bragged upon by the uh, other saints in our lives. You're going to see Paul brag on the church at Philippi, but it's not something internal with them. It's something that's been given to them, bestowed upon them by the realities of the gospel. The realities of the gospel make us worthy, and it's yes, it's a yesterday, today, and forever kind of thing. They make us worthy yesterday. The realities of the gospel make us worthy yesterday, today, 
forever. Father, today what we know not, please teach us. What we are not, please make us. And what we have not, please give us. If I might be vulnerable before your people, I feel drained to the, to the dregs right now, empty. That's good news. Just a reminder that I have absolutely nothing to give us today. It must come from you. It must come from your word. It must come from us seeing Jesus. And so we ask for that today in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. In verses 3 through 8, we're going to see that the gospel makes us worthy. Paul starts very similarly, though, to how he talked in Philemon. Remember, he rejoiced in what God was doing in Philemon's life, those of you that were here for the first week of that series. He writes a letter to Philemon, and he says, I see all this stuff that God's doing in your life. Beautiful, and he, he celebrates it. Verses 3 and 4 read very similarly. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, saints at Philippi, making my prayer with joy. There's joy as well. So he remembers them frequently. He thinks of them fondly. He prays for them regularly. And when he does, he is filled with joy. When he thinks of the saints at Philippi, he is filled with joy. When he prays for them, joy. When he remembers them, joy. Why? He gives a couple reasons in verse 5, 3 to be exact. Because of your partnership, one, in the gospel, two, from the first day until now. There's three parts of that verse that explain why the apostle Paul feels joy as he thinks about the saints at Philippi. Their partnership. The word here, and, and again, I, I, uh, I don't, I'm not trying to sound smart, but we've seen this word multiple times, koinonia, okay? And so it's just, it's been a recurring theme. That's the only reason I bring it up now. If you were with us in Galatians and then in Ephesians and then even in Philemon, we saw this Greek word koinonia over and over and over again. It's a theme of Scripture. It means fellowship, but not just like the potluck dinner kind of fellowship hall, if you grew up in a church that kind of did that sort of thing. Not the potluck dinner fellowship hall, although that's included in it, but that is not near the whole part of it. It is deep, generous, sacrificial commitment to one another. Partnership in the heaviest sense of the word. Not like we're partners in a business, but not in anything else. This is a very... We are partners in life. We sacrifice for each other. We lay our lives down for each other. That's koinonia. We invest in each other. That's koinonia, and that's the word the Apostle Paul uses very intentionally here. That's one of the reasons he's filled with joy is because he shares this deep fellowship, this deep, selfless, generous, willing relationship. But it's not in and of themselves that it happens. It's because of the gospel. That's the second thing we observe in verse 5. It's the gospel that has made them this way. Last week we said friends don't let friends forget the gospel. Because it is only the gospel that can transform us. And they weren't just good friends. So he doesn't just celebrate just their friendship. 
their friendship was rooted in the gospel. And so he points them to that. Last week in the very first two verses, which we read towards the end, he says the name Jesus Christ three times in two verses. Right? There's some, right? When you beat it, it sounds like he's beating a dead horse. Or he sounds like a broken record. But there are some things that should be on repeat. And the gospel is one of them. And he doesn't leave it. And he keeps coming back to it because it's what transforms. They're gospel partners. What changed Lydia's life? It wasn't Paul's charisma or the strategic planning of Timothy or, or, or any of those involved. It was the gospel that transformed her life, transformed her household. What changed the demon-possessed girl's life from Acts chapter 16? If you weren't here, I know that's a big But there's this girl whose life is just completely changed by the power of God. It's the gospel that set her free. The jailer in Acts chapter 16 in Philippi. What changed his life and the life of his household? The gospel. The apostle Paul, who was a persecutor of Christians, was on his way to arrest Christians when God knocked him off his horse and revealed the truth about Jesus to him and he believed in, in, in Christ, it was the gospel that transformed his life. And it will be only the gospel that transforms our lives. We witnessed it last week, right? There were people who said, we have come to faith in Jesus Christ, and so we're going to not just proclaim that to the world that we are followers of Jesus, but we're going to do a little play acting. That's not what this wasn't play acting, but there was play acting involved in the sense that it testified to something that's already happened. Jesus died on the cross, was buried and raised back to life. We saw that. And through the finished work of Jesus on the cross, the Bible says the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. There is a washing away of our sinfulness because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And so there's even symbolism of that and baptism of, of being buried and raised to life and being washed in the water, being made clean. Jesus died for sinners like you and sinners like me. And just like Paul said to the jailer last week, and well, he didn't say it last week, but we looked at it last week in Acts 16, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's it. Faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross is all that is required to make you right with God. Believe on Jesus. This is how these lives were transformed. And the gospel is not just one stop on the Christianity train, by the way. It's not like the station that you get on the Christianity train and then you leave the station and the gospel is just something that hangs out in the rearview mirror. For the rest of your life. No, the gospel carries us through. It's the train. The truth about Jesus, the realities of the gospel are the train that carries us through the Christian life from stop one to the eternal last stop, which is glory. It's the gospel that carries us from the first day until now, Paul said. Right? He said, I'm thankful for your partnership and I'm thankful for the gospel. And I've seen both of these things from the first day, that day with Lydia by the river until now. There's two things, two, well, we're actually going to see three of them, but there's two that we've already seen under the surface here, doctrinal terms or, or whatever you want to call them, big words, million dollar words that you learn in 
Christianity. One is justification and the other is sanctification. He says the first day, and when he says the first day, he's pointing back to that day that they were justified. They came to faith in Jesus Christ, and when they did, when they believed on the finished work of Jesus on the cross, God looks at them and says, I see righteousness now. Where I once saw sin, now I see righteousness. Not your righteousness, but Jesus's righteousness. I see it. You are righteous. And you, in that sense, it sounds like a legal term, but it's a term of, of not just relationship and reconciliation, but how we are seen in God's eyes as justified, righteous. That's who we are. That's how God sees us. And so that's step one. And that's kind of a moment. Like it, it happens in a, in a moment. If you think about your walk with Christ linearly, then at the very beginning of your walk with Christ is that moment of justification. From then on, you're in a very long process with its ups and downs called sanctification. You're being made more and more like Jesus. This isn't a doctrine class. These are things that we cling to as the people of God. We are justified through the work of the gospel, and then through the work of the gospel, we continue, right? God looks at us and sees the perfection of Jesus. But you all know you're not perfect yet, right? The man preaching is not perfect yet. We are in process. That's sanctification. And so we are going from justification through sanctification. It's the work of the gospel. J.I. Packer says it like this when he talks about sanctification. He says, the truth is, though we are justified by faith alone, get that, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Faith saves you. The faith that justifies is never alone. It always produces fruit, good works, a transformed life. Now, don't mishear that in the sense that if you don't have good works, like a certain amount of good works, you're not a Christian or you're not a believer. But what you do see is that it comes... Uh, Justification never comes by itself, right? When God promises that he will justify you, he promises that he will also continue to transform you from one glory to another into the image of his son, Jesus. And so the faith that saves you and the gospel that saves you is the gospel that will continue to transform you further into Christ's image, both empowered by the gospel, but not only past and present, verse 6, one of my favorite in all of Scripture. But I am sure of this, he says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. The fourth reason is one that's not yet realized for Paul's joy, for Paul's confidence, and that's the future work of the gospel. The gospel makes you worthy in the past. Those of you that are Christians, if you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have been saved, made worthy before God. You are being sanctified. You are being continually made more and more like Jesus, worthy before God. And one day, the promise is that at the last day, the day of Christ, when Jesus returns and, and gathers up all of his children for eternity with him, playing our little harps on the clouds, right? Way better than that. Eternity with Jesus, we will be made completely righteous. 
completely transformed to the image of Christ. That's the hope. And Paul says, he who started the work justified you and is carrying on the work sanctifying you will be the one who glorifies you. Or, if you'd rather not use big words, just say Jesus will finish what he started. Right? You can remember that, right? There's no quiz on these theological terms, but you better believe as a Christian that God is going to finish what he started, that Jesus is going to finish what he started, and he will. And that's Paul's confidence. That because of the gospel, the realities of the gospel, Jesus is going to finish what he started. And he doubles down. He says, my confidence is like, like, maybe, I don't know if he kind of hears people saying, man, Paul's like kind of up on his soapbox now. He's being dramatic like he tends to be, right? He tends to like really kind of oversell things. He says, it is right, verse 7, for me to feel this way about you all. It's the right thing, both righteous, good, but also right, like intellectually right. Like it makes sense for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, two things that make him say it's right for me to feel this way about you. When I sit here and I'm filled with joy as I pray for you because of the work of the gospel in your life, it's right for me to feel that way about you because you've tasted grace right alongside me. I was there, Lydia, when you prayed. I was there, Lydia, in the water with you when you were baptized. I saw the grace of God at work in your life. I was there, demon-possessed girl whose name we don't know, when your life was completely and utterly dramatically transformed by the power of God. I saw it with my own eyes, jailer. Right on the verge of ending his own life and saved miraculously by Jesus. I was there. I saw it. And he's gone back on his third missionary journey and he's seen how the church has grown and he knows I, I am with you. We have tasted of this grace together and I, I know it. It is obvious to me. And not only that, but this is what I mentioned at the very beginning, that grace has been confirmed over and over and over again in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your battles, and in the midst of my suffering. He says, I'm in prison now. And even in prison, the grace hasn't dried up. The power of the gospel hasn't been thwarted by these chains. It's still good. The grace of God is still overflowing in my life and in your lives. And as they face opposition in Philippi, which is undefined in the letter, but some sort of hostility against the church has arisen, as you face that and you're uh, battling against this, opposition, the grace of God, the gospel is confirmed in your lives. Again, I already said it, but when you see the suffering worshiping, it confirms the realities of the gospel. When you see questions leveled at the gospel and there's answers given back for them, it confirms the realities of the gospel. And so that is exactly what is happening. Grace 
present in suffering and in battling. The gospel is legitimate. He says, I've seen it in your life. Our past and present and future hope is the gospel. And that's been proven true over and over again. So now what, right? So if that's true, and I know that maybe that was like drinking from a fire hose, or if you've been around Christianity your whole life, that was just a a refresher of the truth about the gospel. But if all that's true, that in the past we've been justified by the power of the gospel, been made right before God, if in the now we're being made more and more like Jesus by the power of the gospel, and if we have an, an unflinching hope in the future of the gospel, if that's all true, and it is, and if Paul loves the saints at Philippi, and he does, just look at verse 8, for God is my witness how I yearn for you, yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. That's a big statement of love and affection and kindness. This is kind of gross, but it's just the way Greek works. That word yearn has to do with the bowels of a person. But think about it. Think about that maybe when love first kind of maybe captures you, how you feel those butterflies in your stomach. Think about how anxiety can like make you sick to your stomach, right? Like, so kind of, you can kind of grasp it, right? How this central kind of gut revelation of his love for them is present with him. That joy comes from his gut. That love comes from his gut. I mean, as deep inside of him as is possible, he loves them. He yearns for them. So what's he do in light of this truth and in light of this love? Well, it's simple, and this is really our primary application. He prays for them. Watch how he prays. Verse 9 through 11, our last verses. And it is my prayer, he says, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. He says, I'm praying for more of the gospel in your life. You love each other in the church. You love other Christians. Pray for them that they will know the gospel more and more and more, that they will experience the gospel more and more and more. Make that your prayer for your brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, more love in the gospel. More of God's love, like that they'll know more that you are loved by God. How, and again, I know that, especially if you've been around church, it's like since Sunday school, you've been told that, that you're loved by God. It's like so obvious. But I mean, again, I don't believe it wholeheartedly all the time. You don't always believe it wholeheartedly all the time. Think how revolutionized our lives would be if we understood the depth of God's love for us. We are loved by God. And then he says, and we love God in return. That's, I want more of that. I want more of you experiencing the love of God and, and giving that love back to God and to others. I want that for your life. And not only that, but more knowledge. I want you to know holistically and relationally, this Greek word has that implication. 
that it's an entire knowing, a full knowing, not just intellectually, but experientially. You know someone that you're married to, perhaps, or you know a best friend. That's that idea. You know them. You know them deeply. He said, I want you to know God like that. I want you to know Jesus that way. And that will lead to discernment, right? The more you know God, the closer you walk with God, the more you'll know truth from lies, right from wrong. You'll know the where and the when and the how in a lot of situations as you follow Jesus. He says more holiness. The original language here points towards holiness in their motives towards each other. He's not just talking about outward manifestation of right of righteousness. He's talking about right motives in the soul. Anybody can shine up, right? Anybody can, 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 like, like uh, Jesus says, like whitewash the tomb, right? Like you can make it look clean on the outside, but he says, I want internal holiness and then more fruit. And this is interesting. And I brought us a quote just to, to help us. This is what he means by fruit. This is what the commentator Gordon Fee says. He says, in our, he, so he takes the whole context of Philippians. He takes the whole context of uh, this part right here, and he says, here's what he means by fruit. In our letter, the way of love, the way that love expresses itself as righteousness of the kind that really counts, it does so by adopting a cruciform lifestyle. So the fruit he wants to see for them, the fruit he's praying for is that they will adopt what this commentator calls a cruciform lifestyle, like that of Christ and his apostle. Thus, it means to go the way of the cross, self-emptying so as to become a servant of all in place of selfish ambition. There's replacements of other fruits that we sometimes see in our lives. And in that servanthood, humbling oneself to the point of dying for another in place of vain conceit. That is what it means for Paul to know Christ, all other righteousness, especially religious righteousness, is refuse in comparison. We'll get to that verse. Paul says the real fruit of the Christian is selflessness, self-sacrifice, laying down your life for the sake of others. He wants to see that fruit. And lastly, and this should be so obvious at this point, that only happens, he says, through Jesus through the finished work of Jesus on the cross, and he will finish what he started, and it happens for God's glory. Jesus has to pull it off, and God gets the glory for it, and he gets his glory. So that's it. There's stuff there that I'm hoping you're taking away that first and foremost... Friends, don't let friends forget the gospel because it is the gospel of grace that leads us home. So how do we respond as saints? I have three takeaways for us. The first is this. Brag about the transforming power of the gospel. That's what Paul does. We learn that from his behavior. He does it in other letters too. Brag about it. That's not selfish. That's not arrogant as long as you do it in such a way that people know unequivocally that you're attributing it to the work of God. But we should not be ashamed to brag about what God is doing in the lives of others and in our own lives. Now, I use the word brag to kind of get everybody looking at me. Um, Brag is like a word that has a lot of bad connotations in it. So this isn't like I'm not talking about like beating your chest. 
what God has done. I'm talking about celebrating, but unashamedly celebrating the work of Jesus to transform lives. We posted all these pictures of the baptisms and these videos of the baptisms with no shame. We didn't feel arrogant because the only person who can get those people in the water is Jesus. So we were bragging on the work God had done, celebrating what he had done. So do do that. In your community groups this week, in person, wherever you're at with other believers, man, I saw Jesus in your life manifested in the way that you interacted with that person. I, I see your sensitivity to the Holy Spirit as you navigate this thing in your life. Celebrate those realities. Second, pray for gospel transformation. That's an obvious takeaway from here. In fact, what I would do is go to verses 9 through 11 at some point this week and pray for your family. Pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray for Mercy Village Church. Just pray those verses. Ask God for those things that you read there for the people of God. And then lastly, have hope. This is an up and down road to be transformed by the gospel. Right? Like I'm not talking about like just something we're going to put on a t-shirt. When I pray for Mercy Village Church, my prayer is for people who are truly being transformed by the gospel where they're at, that you become different as a parent because of the gospel, that you become different as an employee because of the gospel, that you become different as a friend because of the gospel that you become different in every aspect of your life because of the gospel. That's my desire. That's what I mean. That's not easy. That's an up and down road. That comes with wins and losses. That comes with two steps forward and one step back. And in that, you have to have hope or you'll give up. Here's your homework. If you haven't already, no, the homework never gets checked, by the way. Memorize verse 6. I'll read it again. I don't have the slide for it in this part. but And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Memorize that. Put it on a post-it note on your bathroom mirror, whatever, and lay hold of that hope for yourself. God will finish what he started. Those documents from the U.S. Embassy, with the missing corner, we clung to them. About 24 hours worth of travel through Dubai and then into Washington, D.C., Dallas Airport. And I was still anxious, I'm not going to lie, until we cleared customs, right? So we carried those documents up to the customs official, and they look mean. They put the meanest looking ones there for a reason, I believe it. We know we're worthy. We got U.S. passports, baby. Those things are worth more than gold. If you ever travel internationally, you better put those in the front pocket. That's worth more than you know it is. We were worthy. Our daughter was only worthy by that paperwork. And they finally break the seal and they pull out the paperwork and they go through all of it. And then they take her passport, which was Ugandan at the time, and they stamp it. Worthy. 
Do you hear me? Word. And then what happened? We walked through these double doors. And I'm not lying. There were people seemingly from every tribe and tongue and nation there waiting for their arrivals of people that they knew with signs saying, welcome home and we love you. And there at the end of that row, I saw familiar faces, my mom and my dad, friends that we loved and and my boys. The paperwork made us worthy, made her worthy. And she was welcome. He who began a good work in you made you worthy. And he will keep making you worthy. And one day he's going to throw open the doors to all the children of God and you're going to walk right in there with your head held high, not saying, look at me, but saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and power because your worthiness is grounded in his worthiness. That's why I can't fail. If you're a child of God today, you'll be a child of God tomorrow and you'll be a child of God to the end and he will not cast you out and he will not reject you. And that's beautiful. The gospel makes you worthy. The gospel is the only thing that makes us worthy and the gospel makes us worthy yesterday, today, and forever. If you're not a Christian, right? I don't say this out of fear. I just say this out of the message of the of the word of God is different in the end for those who are not in Christ. It's not upward into worthiness. It's not upward into family. It's not upward into eternal uh, joy and bliss. It's, It's downward. All the language of the Bible is downward, away from the eternal gladness of God. Away from peace that supersedes everything. To destruction death. But if you're not a Christian, good news, that doesn't have to be the end of your story. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, Acts 16.31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. If you are not a Christian and you have any questions about that, I'll stay here till Wednesday talking to you about it. I really don't care. I want to have that conversation with you, what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that, that the gospel has changed our lives. I could sit here and brag even more. It's not just on Aniston's birthday and the earliest story that testifies to the fullness of the gospel. It's all up and down these rows, and it's beautiful. And I want to just thank you for it. And I can't even express the level of thankfulness that I have, that you have changed lives and you are changing lives and give us hopes hope that you will complete that work in us because of the power of the gospel. In the name of Jesus. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this feed wherever you listen to podcasts. We exist to experience and embody redemption and renewal in Christ alone. And we'd love for you to experience what God is doing as Jesus builds Mercy Village Church. Connect with us online at www.mercyvillage.church.